And let me read the first um, 10 verses of Romans chapter 11. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and they have torn down thine altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be a present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise Grace is no longer grace. What then, that which Israel was seeking for, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to not see and ears to hear not, down to this very day. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I've entitled uh, tonight's sermon, Does God Have a Future for Israel? Uh, It's a very straightforward question, but depending on who you ask that question, you might get a variety of different answers, uh, because there there seems to be a tremendous amount of uh, confusion uh, on the issue. And uh, confusion is unnecessary, because I think the Bible is very clear uh, uh, and very straightforward on the issue. The the Bible teaches both Old and New Testaments— in uh, clear terms, that God has a glorious plan and future for the nation of Israel. And and this is because God has made unconditional promises uh, to them that cannot be broken. And and although Israel is in a current state of unbelief and rebellion, God is not through with them yet. God keeps his promises. God's word can be trusted. And everything that he's promised to them will come to pass, which means that Israel, again, has a glorious future to come. Now, we've been working our, our way through uh, these uh, uh, chapters, 9, 10, and 11, here for a few weeks now. And, and it really ha- has to do with the topic of the faithfulness of God, the fact that God can be trusted. That really is the central issue in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And although there's some Christians who think that God is finished with the nation, that cannot possibly be true because there are certain promises to them that he has not yet fulfilled. And if God can't keep or doesn't keep his word in total to the nation of Israel, then his word is false and his, his uh, integrity is uh, discredited. And much of the confusion uh, over the future of the nation of Israel comes from those who hold to what is known as a covenant, uh, what is known as covenant theology. Now, there are a lot of good men who come out of that system of covenant theology, a lot of helpful things that men have written over the years that, that come out of that system. But I think we have to be discerning what they, what we read for them and what they write, especially when it comes to the issue uh, relating to Israel and the church. Because in this area, they're often confused because they fail to keep the biblical distinction between Israel and the church. Therefore, concerning Israel, their conclusions are often in error. And the name covenant theology is somewhat ironic because many of them in that camp believe that God has rejected Israel and the church has in some fashion replaced Israel in the plan of God. Therefore, God is not going to fulfill his covenant promises to the nation of Israel. And again, those who hold that distorted view of Israel and the church, they, uh, failing to keep that distinction uh, between Israel and the church, they come up with that uh, um, in error conclusion that God is not going to keep his promises. I mentioned it to you before. I think there's over 200 references in the Bible that God has called the God of Israel. There are about 2,000 references to Israel in the scripture, and not one of them means anything but Israel. So to take a position that the promises of the Old Testament that refer to Israel are really now meant for the church, there really is no precedence, no biblical precedence for such an interpretation. Seventy-three references in the New Testament, each one of them means Israel. Seventy-three references to Israel in the New Testament, each one means Israel. So if you come from this camp of covenant theology, then you have to believe that the promises to God are no longer intact. The promises that God made to Israel are no longer intact. That God's not going to keep his word to the nation of Israel then you can't escape the implication that God is not faithful in fully honoring his covenant. Now, some who come from that uh, position, 
uh, that somehow the church has replaced Israel. Sometimes that's known as replacement theology. Sometimes it's known as supersessionism. And there's some within the group that don't like either one of those uh, titles because they don't see them as very positive. So uh, some have come up within that camp uh, term they prefer known as fulfillment theology, where the church becomes the new and or the true Israel that has forever superseded or fulfills all the promises that God has made in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel. The church now fulfills those promises. And whatever term you use on this issue, whether it's replacement theology, supersessionism, or fulfillment theology, the, the view is basically the same, that certain promises were made to the nation of Israel that God's not going to keep with the nation of Israel. Covenants made with Israel have been lost. They've been forfeited. Uh, a lot of people uh, would say because of uh, Israel's disobedience. And now all the promises are in the possession of another group of people, therefore... Uh, Israel has no future, unique future, no unique role or status in uh, God's economy and all the God's, all God's covenant promises, therefore, are given somehow uh, to another group of people who would accept the Messiah, again, namely the church. And, and again, I, I think that's a, a sad view and far too, com- far too common of a view, uh, this uh, misunderstanding, because God's a covenant-keeping God. God can't lie. Whatever God says he's going to do, he's going to do. God's going to keep his word to the minutest detail. It's all going to come to pass. And again, God has made certain unconditional promises of the nation of of Israel through Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish people from whom will come the nation of Israel. And and again, through Abraham's offspring, Isaac, the son of promise, and then through uh, Abraham's uh, grandson, Isaac's son, Jacob, who again, God later renames Israel. God's made certain unconditional promises that he's going to keep. Now, I hope you're in a turn from this passage to this passage kind of a view or mood tonight because that's what we're going to do. You can sit and listen or you can follow me, but take your Bible and go back to Genesis 12, you who want to follow. And I just want us to see this in the text of Scripture. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Here here God has made a, a promise to Abram. Or Abraham, as we would know him, but Abram. Genesis 12.1. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country. Go forth from your country and from your relatives, and I, from your father's house, here it is, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Uh, Again, it's known as the Abrahamic covenant. And, And five times in there you have the Lord saying, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. It's a unilateral, unconditional, sovereign promise or sovereign covenant that God is making with Abram. And God is saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do to make you a great nation, to bless you and make your name great. And and then you'll become a blessing and you'll bless all those, uh, uh, and I'll bless all those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Again, it's it's unilateral. It's given by God himself with his authority and, and with all of his power. Now go to chapter 13, because in chapter 13, God reaffirms that covenant with Abram or Abraham. Again, he's called Abram before he enters into, the, into Canaan. Genesis 13, 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. Verse 15. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you, And to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, your descendants can be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Now, this isn't an agreement between two parties. This is God promising Abram or Abraham what he will do. God owns the land. And God says, I'm going to, by my sovereign choice, give it to whom I choose to give it. 
Some years later, God reiterates that promise over in Genesis uh, chapter 15, verse 5. He took him, Abram, outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars. If you're able to count them, uh, he said to him, you shall, uh, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and the Lord reckoned to him his righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. Now it was on this occasion that God instructed Abram to cut certain uh, prescribed animals in half and then lay each half open uh, apart from each other. And then Abram did what he was instructed. And then the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Abram. And Abram didn't participate in the confirmation of this covenant uh, other than to be an observer. And the text says that only the Lord himself passed between the pieces of the animal, signifying that he alone was going to fulfill this covenant. So again, it's an unconditional promise made by God, not not dependent upon Abram, unilateral, irrevocable, a divine promise made by God to him. And God goes through the pieces alone. Again, he binds himself uh, to the promise that he's making with Abram. Uh, In essence, when you made a covenant like that and you cut these animals in half, you're saying, if I don't keep my side of the covenant, may this happen to me, is is basically the symbolism there. So God is going to give Abram and his descendants a piece of land that they have still up to this day not yet possessed. They've not to this day yet possessed. But they will because God has promised that in his word. He's bound himself to his word. Verse 13. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. They will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they shall, will serve. And afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, <coughs> from the river <coughs> excuse me, from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kizanite, uh, uh, and the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perzerite, uh, and the Raphaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Now, I don't know how else you could read that portion of Scripture with all those names that you can't pronounce, but he's talking about land, right? He's talking about giving a piece of land with certain people who live in that portion of land. He, he describes it by the, the people who live there. He describes it by the rivers, and I'm of the opinion that God knows how to speak and that he doesn't stutter. He understands words. He knows exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about land. He's not talking about special, uh, spiritual blessings to the church. He's talking about physical land that he has promised to give to Abraham and his descendants, or Abram and his descendants, and he's promised to give it to them forever. And by the way, because I know the argument on the other side, by the way, Israel never attained the boundaries of the promised land uh, promised by God. Not in 1 Kings 4, 21 through 24. Not in Joshua 21, 43 through 45. Nor in Nehemiah 9, uh, 7 through 8. They never attained the boundaries. Therefore, that means at some point they must possess these boundaries sometime in the future because God promised that to them. And most certainly, have they not possessed the geographical boundaries, but most certainly they never possessed the land in peace, as God promised to them. They're always in conflict. And they've never possessed it as an everlasting possession. They haven't possessed it in peace. They haven't possessed it with the the promised Davidic king uh, to rule over them. And, and, And therefore, these are future promises that have to be fulfilled. Because God's promised blessing to Israel... Uh, is going to be fulfilled because his words promises it. And because God has a promise for the future of the nation of Israel, they have been uh, divinely preserved up to this day. Without God's promise, that would not have happened. 
So the covenant that God has made with Abraham, although it's for the benefit of Abraham's descendants, ultimately it's really from, uh, the, for the, a blessing for the entire earth. And so again, in terms of the covenant that, with Abraham, again, they were unconditional. God swore by himself, to himself, with himself. He makes an inviolable oath to himself to keep his promise to Abram or to Abraham. And God's going to do exactly what he says. He's going to fulfill the covenant in every detail. Because God promised through to Abram or Abraham, through his descendants, through Isaac, not Ishmael, but Isaac, this one he chose, not, uh, through Jacob, not Esau, he's promised to bless the nation of Israel. Promises that he will bless them with land, seed, uh, a blessing uh, to the entire world. Abraham is going to be the father of many nations, and from his descendants would be, again, blessings uh, to the world. And, and then his uh, descendants would have an everlasting possession of the land of Canaan. And again, God promised Abraham uh, through his descendant Isaac, uh, who is the son of promise. Uh, uh, the nation of Israel has always been uh, God's chosen people, and they've always been divinely preserved by God because of the promises that God has made to them. Uh, otherwise, God would not fulfill his, his uh, uh, irrevocable promises to her. God's character, his, his nature, his trustworthiness, his faithfulness is at stake in the preservation of Israel. He's obligated himself to the nation. He, he, he's uh, ultimately promised that he's going to redeem the nation and establish her as a purified, glorious kingdom above all other kingdoms of the world. And although Israel is in a state of unbelief today, God still sovereignly preserves her. In, in 1948, brought her back into the land uh, as an independent, recognized state amongst the, uh, the nations of the world. Now, there are many people who just completely dismiss that whatsoever. It's a massive apologetic to the power, the power of the existence of the nation of Israel, an ethnic people in their own land, just as God had promised. And I think the whole situation of Israel being back in the land is utterly amazing because, and by some accounts, perhaps the, most, the single most inexplicable story of human history because you have a small group of beleaguered people who out their entire history have been nothing but assaulted and, and attacked, assailed by everyone around them throughout the countless centuries, but they're, they're still in existence as a pure ethnic race back in their own land. History says when Frederick the Great, who is the king of Prussia, called his chaplain in and said, I want proof of the truthfulness of the Bible, and I want it briefly, the chaplain replied, Sir, I can give you proof to the truthfulness of the Bible in one word, Israel. The existence and the fact of Israel. Again, look over at uh, Genesis 17, verse 1. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations, and no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Now, Abram just means noble father. And Abram, or Abraham, means the father of a multitude. He says, I will make you a, a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you for your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Now the word in Hebrew for everlasting is olam. So I guess the question would be is, how long is everlasting? Answer, pretty long time. Pretty long time. Perpetual, forevermore. Eternal. Verse 8, I will give to you and to your descendants after you, next two words, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, 
which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and this shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. He went on and read a little bit further at the end of verse 13. It says, My God, or my, my covenant will be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. <clears throat> at the end of verse 19, God says, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, <coughs> and you shall call his name Isaac. Uh, I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So again, God is binding himself to this group of people, to Abraham and his descendants in an everlasting covenant. You'd see the same thing if you turned over to chapter 22, verse 15. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But it says, The angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall pursue, or your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And again, your seed re- refers to Messiah. So in the Abrahamic covenant, God promised to bless all that comes from the nation of Israel, the people all the people of the world through Abraham and through his descendants. And again, the ultimate um, uh, fulfillment of that promise culminates in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He, he comes from Israel. God promised Abraham, uh, Abraham land. He promised him a nation. He promised him a people of a great influence. He promised that through him would be blessing to the world, blessing to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And again, salvation is found in the Messiah, which comes ultimately uh, through the seed of Abraham. Now, we don't have time to get into it, but these promises that God made to Abraham, he's got to reiterate, this time to Isaac, Abraham's son, Genesis 26, Genesis 26, 24, the Lord appeared to him in the same night and said, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham. Do not fear, before I'm, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. See the same thing in Genesis 28. But now God reiterates the Abrahamic promise to Abraham's uh, to Isaac's son, Jacob, again, who God later changes to Israel. Genesis 28, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord uh, God of your fathers, Abraham, and, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread out to the west and to the east and the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the founders of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So again, God made uh, unilateral, unconditional, eternal promises to men, right? To, To the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, what's the one thing that unifies all these men together? Well, they're all in the same family. They're all men who God has made a promise with. And guess what? They all happen to be, fill in the blank, sinners. I knew you'd get there, right? They all happen to be sinners. So God makes unconditional, unilateral, eternal promises to sinners because he doesn't have anybody else to make unconditional, unilateral promises to among men because we're all sinners. But God keeps his word because God is faithful. He's made promises to through Abraham that are going to come in the future. Land, seed, blessing, and a king, and a kingdom. And, and, and these have never changed. They've never been canceled. And, and God's faithful always to his word. 2 Samuel 7, verse 10. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, and they will live in their own place and not be disturbed Again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Verse 16 of that chapter. In your house, your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Right? There's going to be a promise of peace in the land. An establishment of a king that will come uh, from uh, Abram, uh, ultimately from David. A forever established kingdom. Amos 9, verse 12, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them, and they will plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit, and I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. 
Turn over to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 21. And say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land and on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king of all of them, and they will no longer be two nations, they will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. And they will no longer defile themselves with their idols, nor their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. And my servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statues and observe them. And they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it. They and their sons and their sons, sons, forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them uh, and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. And I will be their God, and they will be my people, and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Now, while it's true, when you go to the New Testament, the land promises are not given a whole lot of attention to. However, there's no New Testament text that says that God ever canceled these land promises that he made to the nation of Israel. If there was a New Testament text, which there was not, then the validity of these earlier Old Testament promises to the ear of the original audience, that would be called into question. How would people who naturally heard those promises, receive those promises in the time in which they lived, how would they have received them? If there was some New Testament text that said, no, King's X, all this is not true anymore, then the people who originally heard it the way they heard it with land, 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 uh, seed, blessing, all those things, kingdom and a king forever they they would have uh, not heard what they thought they heard right but, but again god knows how to speak he made promises to each original audience right god made promises to the nation of israel that he is going to keep first samuel 12 verse 22 for the lord for the lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name because the lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself what binds God to the nation of Israel. God himself does. I will not abandon his people on account of his great name. Uh, uh, Psalm 94 verse 14. The Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. Well, what if they disobey? Psalm 89 31. If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will visit their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes, but... I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely with my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance from my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever, like the moon and the witness of the sky is faithful. And then it has this word that nobody knows how to translate, Selah, which I happen to think means Loose paraphrase, what do you think of that? That's what I think that means. What do you think of that? God has spoken. God's grace overcomes and surpasses people's sin. God loves his people, the nation of Israel, and nothing is going to cause him to break off his loving kindness towards them, not even their disobedience. And because of the wonderful nature and character of our God, we who are Gentile believers... 
can have that tremendous hope and confidence for ourselves that nothing we do or nothing we do not do can ever separate us from the love of God that he has for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the hope. That's the encouragement. When you come to Romans chapter uh, 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 11, verse 1, God has not rejected his people. How's it may it never be? God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So again, the question is, does God have a future for the nation of Israel? Answer, absolutely. Because God has promised not only to bring his chosen people, the nation of Israel, to salvation, God has promised to restore to her her kingdom in her own land, in peace, a land again of eternal blessings, a land filled with a a people that enjoy God's presence and enjoy God's peace. Has not happened yet. Turn to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 32, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Verse 35, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth be searched out below, then I will also cast off all of the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. Last time I looked, sun, the moon, the stars were all on their place in the sky. Therefore, that guarantees God's faithfulness to Israel. Now, all of that is just kind of an introduction into the chapter. So start making your way back to Romans 11. Again, Paul says, Romans 11, verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So again, the central issue in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans is the faithfulness of God. The fact that God can be trusted. And that's the ultimate issue for both Jewish believer or Gentile believer, the faithfulness of God. Even though the Jews at the time have rejected the Messiah, they've crucified God's Son, God and His Word can always still be counted upon. Paul knew how important this issue is because Paul knew that neither Jew or Gentile could place their trust in a God who does not keep His Word. So again, as I told you, these three chapters, they fit together as a unit. Again, addressing the issue of Israel and its relationship to the gospel of grace. Again, God's eternal purposes for the nation of Israel hadn't failed. All, God, all whom God has elected from the, from the nation will indeed be saved. God's word, again, has not failed them. For all who rejected the Savior Jesus Christ and attempted to put forward some kind of form of self-righteousness to make them worthy objects of God's salvation, Paul said they're going to be lost. Because eternal life is not something that's earned. Eternal life is something that is given by free grace, received as a gift. And again, Israel's refusal to believe was their own fault, not God's. They heard the gospel. As remember, we went through that at the end of the 10th chapter of Romans. They heard the gospel clearly. They heard it proclaimed. They understood it. Yet they rebelled. They refused to believe it. Therefore, because of their continual rejection of God's grace, for a time the nation of Israel has been set aside. They were to be his witness nation. 
They were to be his witness nation to the world, declaring the gospel, but they failed to do that. But in spite of their rejection of God, rejection of grace, in spite of the rejection of the Messiah, in spite of the fact that they have now been temporarily set aside, their rejection is not in total. And we're going to see that as we work our way through this 11th chapter. Now, there's a lot of material here. And believe it or not, I'm trying to work my way through this material rather quickly. I know it doesn't look like that, but, and I'm not doing very good, but I am trying. But again, Paul very strongly rejects the idea that God is done with the nation of Israel. In fact, he's going to show that God is still graciously dealing with them and that there is a future time coming when he will save and restore them in fulfillment of his covenant promises. So again, in this 11th chapter, we're going to see, number one, God's rejection of Israel is not total. Number two, we're going to see the purpose of uh, Israel's rejection. And then number three, the promises of Israel's restoration. That's all coming in the chapter. But tonight we're just going to look at the first one because we're just going to look at these first ten verses. And we're going to see three reasons why the setting aside of Israel is not total. Or three reasons why God's setting aside of Israel is only partial. And it has to do with, it begins right here at the first verse. I will say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So the first truth that Paul sets forth to prove that the rejection of Israel or the setting aside of Israel is only temporary and not permanent is the truth about himself. God has not rejected his people, has he? The word rejected means to thrust away or drive away, push aside. And reject is in the middle voice, which simply means to thrust away from oneself. So the question is, has God thrust away his people from himself? Has God thrust away the people that he once called to himself? And and Paul's answer is, may it never be. It's in the strongest form of negation in the Greek. May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. I, Paul, am a Jew. A nation from the nation of Israel, part of God's covenant people one of Abraham's true offspring from the tribe of, that remained faithful to him, the tribe of Benjamin. And listen, as long as God has saved even one believing Jew, as long as God has saved even one believing Jew, that in and of itself is proof positive that God has not completely and totally rejected his people Israel. So again, the first evidence that Paul puts forth to support uh, the fact that God's not abandoned his people forever is the fact that he himself, a Jew, has come to saving faith in Christ. Therefore, God is faithful to his promises. God will not forever set his people uh, 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 apart or set him as- forever set them aside. Now again, the apostle knew that no man can trust in a God who can't keep his promises. God had made certain promises of his love to this people, this nation of Israel, that he would never forsake them completely. And God first covenanted to these people again with Israel through Abraham. We just went through that. He made unconditional covenantal promises with himself that he would keep all of his promises to Abraham and his offspring forever. Through the covenant that God made with Abraham, God promised Abraham's descendants through Isaac, the nation to be a great nation, that they would be his people, that he would be their God. He promised this people that comes from Abraham, the nation of Israel, that they would possess a certain portion of land as an everlasting possession. And God promised that they would possess that land in peace and their king would rule over them. And all the nations of the earth would be blessed through them. God's word is at stake in this issue. God's integrity, his honor. If the nation of Israel could reject the Messiah. If the nation of Israel could reject God, they could murder his son, reject grace, and then because of their action, God forever cast off the nation of Israel or thrust the nation of Israel away from him forever as his people, then God's word would not be true. But in spite of the sin of his people, God is a covenant-keeping God. He's a God who's trustworthy, and he's a God who does absolutely everything he says. And he will do and carry out every promise he makes. 
So in spite of the rebelliousness of the nation of Israel, God's people, God has promised that one day he's going to restore them. And he's going to redeem them. And he's going to establish once again a purified nation and a kingdom, and a kingdom above all other kingdoms of the world. God's not done with the nation of Israel. Very clear in chapter 11. Yes, he's temporarily set them aside. Down in verse 25, he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. But there's going to be a time, verse 26, when all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. So again, we have the apostle Paul himself, a Jew, converted from Judaism to Christianity, a believer in the gospel, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And he's saying, well, you know what? When we try to get to this issue and all this theological discussion back and forth, how about I just put myself forward on the stand and be the first witness to this fact that God is not through with the nation of Israel. He's not rejected the nation of Israel in total because I'm a Jew and I'm saved. Second reason, or the second truth that Paul sets forward, that Israel's setting aside is only partial, is found in the truth about the remnant. Truth about the remnant. God always has a remnant. Verse 2. <coughs> God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Verse 3. They have killed all thy prophets, and they have torn down thine altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Or Baal, if you like it that way, I don't care. Verse 5. The same way, then, there's also come to be a present time, a remnant, according to God's gracious choice. So again, in spite how things look superficially, God always has a remnant. God always has a small part, a remnant, a community, a core of believers preserved by God himself. They might be a minority. They might be small in number, but they are survivors. So in verse 2, Paul directly answers the rhetorical question out of verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people. Has he? May it never be. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Pretty straightforward in that text. Again, to reject means to cast away, thrust away. And emphatically, Paul declares, God has not done that. God has not totally, utterly, finally rejected his people whom he has for, whom he foreknew. Now, again, his people is the nation of Israel. Uh, they're disobedient people. They're an awesome people. Yeah, there's the people who refuse grace. There are people who refuse God's compassion and his mercy. But God has not cast away from himself this obstinate and disobedient people whom he foreknew or whom he loved before him. God has not rejected his people for him, uh, uh, his people whom he foreknew. Prognostico is the word. And, and it really means to know beforehand in the sense of not the idea of just having some general knowledge about something, but it's to know in the sense of intimacy, devotion, love. I think I said this last time, right? Adam knew his wife Eve. Right? There's an intimacy there. He doesn't just know she's somewhere in the garden. He knows she's somewhere in the garden. Right? It's an intimacy, a devotion. I, God has not rejected his people whom he's placed his love upon. So God's foreknowledge, God's placing his love on his people, again, speaks to the intimate, loving relationship he has with them as his specially chosen people. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number uh, than any of the peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. Why did God choose the nation of Israel? Because God chose the nation of Israel. It's that simple. God foreknew this people. He determined that he was going to set his love upon them forever. And to reject them would be to completely invalidate his word. It would be to discredit his integrity. And it would be to prove that you cannot count on God to keep his promises to you. 
But the truth is, God always has a remnant. God always has a remnant in the context. Why the Jews aren't believing? All the Jews don't know. No, God always has a remnant. He always keeps a remnant of believing Jews. So again, Paul says, look, I'm going to give you an example of Elijah. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that what, God's, what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and they have torn down your altars. And I alone am left and they are seeking my life. story comes out of 1 Kings 18 and 19. You remember the story, it's uh, uh, Elijah the prophet of God. He's challenging the, the priests of Baal to a contest to prove who's the, the real and powerful God. The priests of Baal were to ask Baal to send down um, a fire to consume the sacrifice on the altar. And Elijah is going to ask his God, the God of Israel, to send down fire to consume the sacrifice on his altar. Baal failed. Jehovah responds. Fire comes down from heaven. It doesn't only consume the sacrifice, but it consumes the altar, the wood, the stones, the dirt, and the water that they'd parted in a trench around the whole thing. Then immediately, Elijah had the 400 prophets of Baal, or Baal, seized and then killed. So it's a great victory for the prophet, and it's a great uh, demonstration of the fact that Jehovah's God, and there is no other. There's no other God. Baal's a false God, but all a false God. Now, when the news of this whole situation reaches uh, Ahab, King Ahab, who's the wicked king over Israel, Ahab goes and tells his wife Jezebel what uh, Elijah had done, and she is an exceedingly wicked woman, so she seeks to have Elijah killed immediately in retaliation. Now, normally, Elijah is a pretty fearless individual, but he becomes despondent. He flees from Jezebel into the wilderness of Sinai, where God comes to him and says, 1 Kings 19.9, Elijah, what are you doing here? To which Elijah says, 1 Kings 19.10, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, the son of Israel, have the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. And that's probably the way it is sometimes when you do ministry, right? you've done ministry for any length of time you know what i'm speaking about you get tired you take your eyes off the lord you place them on other people around you you place them on your circumstances and that's what elijah must have done he must have been emotionally spent by the whole contest between him and the uh, the priest the false priest he forgets that after jehovah shows himself faithful he forgets the fact that israel immediately responded to his challenge, and they immediately executed those 400 false prophets of Baal. Baal. Takes his eyes off God, he places them on the anger of this evil, vile woman, Jezebel. So he says, you know what? I'm going to go on a trip. I think I'll run. So he goes on a 40-day journey to the wilderness. Believes everything's lost. He alone stands up for God. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. You ever get to that position? Nobody else is going to feel bad for me, so I should just have a little pity party for myself and feel bad for myself. I alone, I'm the only one faithful. I'm the only one faithful to you. I alone am the only one who's doing your work. I'm the only one who's doing the work of the ministry, just me. I only. I'm the only one that's preaching. Just me. I alone am left. Now, the Lord cares uh, for his uh, prophet here, so he provides for his needs. Right? Gives him some uh, much-needed rest and food and clothing and etc. So he gives him a new vision. He's going to give him a new vision of God. Remember the story? He comes by. God comes by in this great wind and an earthquake and a fire, all reflecting strength, power, sovereignty of God. And then God comes and speaks to him in a gentle whisper or a still small voice. So again, God asked the prophet, where are you? What are you doing here? Elijah, 1 Kings 19, 13. Elijah gives the same answer. Verse 14, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword and I alone left and they're seeking my life also to take it away. And then God tells him, you need to anoint two new kings. Hazael, the king of Aram, and then Jehu, the king of Israel. 
and then you're to anoint Elisha as his successor. And then God says this to him. Verse 4 of Romans 11. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God says, I've kept 7,000 men. 7,000 men have been preserved from false worship. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have come to know the true knowledge of me, the true knowledge of truth. I've kept 7,000 men for myself. This is my doing. This is my faithfulness to my covenant. I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 men who have not given into acts of idolatry. 7,000 men who have not given into the pressures of the day. 7,000 men I have kept for myself because I'm God. And I'm faithful to my promises. So how do we know that God has not cast away from himself the nation of Israel forever? Point number one, because of the Apostle Paul. The fact that God has called him, a Jew, to himself through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has responded. Secondly, because God always has a remnant. God always has a remnant of believing Jews. Again, verse 4, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be, listen, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So here at the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the nation on a whole is apostate. We got that. Most people don't believe, but some do. God always has a remnant, a godly remnant. God always has those who are looking for the consolation of Israel. God always has those who are looking for the coming of the Messiah, and they saw him. How about the godly old man, Simeon? How about the old woman, Anna? How about Zacharias, or Elizabeth, or Mary, or Joseph? They believed, they all believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They were a faithful remnant according to God's gracious choice. How about the shepherds in the field who came to worship the child? Now, as the early New Testament grew, it was initially made up primarily of Jewish converts. And by Acts 4, there may have been upwards to 20,000 Jewish believers or more in Jerusalem. And by the time Paul is speaking these words here in the book of Romans... Uh, some 25 or 30 years later, by some estimates, there may have been 100,000 Jewish Christians throughout the entire Roman Empire and beyond. Verse 5, in the same way then, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant, according to God's gracious choice, at least 100,000 of them. The King James probably has it best, uh, the proper wording. Even so then, at this present time, also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. That's all true believers of all times. Throughout all the ages. God call, always keeps for himself a remnant. A remnant of believers. Elect not because they're worthy. Elect not because of the nation of their descent. But elect because of God's distinguishing grace and his sovereign electing choice. Even so then at this present time also there's a remnant according to the election of grace, verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So God keeps for himself men and women who have not and who will not bow the knee to the false gods of the day. And he does it by grace alone. Not by works. Not by effort. But again, by his sovereign distinguishing grace. His mercy, his love. And again, that should be an encouragement to us all on a number of different reasons. Right? God always has a remnant. We're not alone in our work for Christ. Right? When we start getting the Elijah syndrome, it's just me and nobody else. Right? I'm alone left. They're seeking my life. God says, no, no, no. I've got many people who are faithful. 7,000 are still loyal to service to me. We're never alone. How do you know that God's setting aside of Israel is only temporal, only partial, Because of the Apostle Paul, number one, and the truth concerning his salvation, number two, because of the fact that God has a remnant, always, according to his gracious choice, even in the nation of Israel, even at the time of the Messiah that he writes. 
And number three, the fact the Lord only hardens those who have refused to believe. The Lord only hardens those whom have refused to believe. Verse 7, what then? That which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. So that which unbelieving, disobedient, obstinate Israel was seeking for, they didn't obtain. Again, they refused God's righteousness through Christ. They tried to establish their own righteousness by their own effort, by their own work. And they never obtained the righteousness that they were seeking. Again, so is the case with every man. Right? You, you can have a zeal for God. You can be a religious individual. You can teach and serve and usher and be a deacon. You can even be an elder in a church. But if you're seeking to establish your righteousness before God by your effort, that righteousness you need is never going to come by your effort. It only comes by the person of Jesus Christ. So if you're trying to trust in your own effort or trying to work your way to heaven in any kind of fashion, thinking Jesus plus something, as I always, always tell you, you're lost. It's not going to happen. You won't obtain the, the righteousness that you're looking for. That which disbelieving Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained because they're trying to find grace by works. But those who were chosen or elect obtained it. Those who were elect obtained it. Well, how do they do that? Well, by grace. By grace alone. Because of the sovereign, distinguishing grace of God. The ones who need the righteousness that is needed to stand in the presence of a holy God, do so only by grace alone. It's only by God intervening in a lost sinner's life and bringing them to faith through the miracle of rebirth, miracle of regeneration, by grace alone. Those who are lost are lost because they have not, it's not because they've been made to disbelieve by God. God doesn't do that. But those who are lost are lost because they themselves have chosen it. They're lost because of their own sin. They're they're lost because they're trying to work for something that God only gives by by free grace. They're lost because they refuse to repent and believe what God has done with men or through men, for men, through the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteousness. Jesus Christ this morning in John 17 finished the work doesn't ask you to add to it he finished the work all God calls us to do is believe repent and believe so God says look there's this tension we talk about all the time right Uh, election on one side divine a sovereign election on one side and man's responsibility from in our mind we get them kind of muddled up there but the, the issue is man's finite mind God elects by grace uh, and, and calls all men to repent and believe on the person of Jesus Christ in time. And those who refuse uh, are, are going to face eternal condemnation, not because they weren't elect. It's because they refused God's offer of mercy. That's what the Bible teaches. God saves according to his gracious choice. There's a remnant that's going to believe. They're going to obtain a righteousness they need for salvation, not because of their effort, but by God's grace. Those who reject God's offer of mercy, he's going to harden. Verse 7 again, what then? That which disbelieving Israel really is the idea. (coughs) Is seeking for it, has not obtained it, but those who were chosen obtained it. The rest were hardened. Verse 8, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not down to this very day. The word harden is the passive. That means the hardening is caused by an outside power, and the outside power is God himself. The truth is God hardens those who refuse to believe. God hardens those who hearts reject his offer of mercy. God hardens those who reject his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and again try to make themselves some other way to heaven. Verse 8, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. Now, because God had chosen the nation of Israel to be a special people, he had blessed them tremendously, given them many spiritual blessings, and all those spiritual blessings 
were meant to use, they're meant to be used to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. But they refuse that. They refuse to believe. They refuse the Messiah. Trying to work their way to heaven. They, they miss the salvation that God had provided for them through Christ. And so all those blessings, all that exposure to the truth became for them a curse. Became for them a further judgment upon them because they had heard the gospel. Remember I said that at the end of the 10th chapter. Why did they get so crazy over the gospel message being proclaimed if all of it was was just a bunch of nonsense, a bunch of pagans believed? What did they care? The issue was they heard, they understood, and they knew the gospel was correct. And that's why they hated it. Because listen, if you're going to have Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you have to admit the fact that you are a sinner. And men don't like that. That's the issue. That They had the truth. They heard the gospel. They understood the gospel, but they refused to believe the gospel. And, and just stop and think about it in the context of our own day. We, we live in a country where, where God has blessed this nation with the gospel freely proclaimed. There's nobody threatening our lives coming into this building on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening. And people in this country have the opportunity to hear the gospel, understand the gospel, respond to the gospel if they want, because God bids all men to come, because God desires that men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, and God desires that men would have eternal life. I think I went through that this morning. But many haven't. Why? Because they don't want to. They refuse God's mercy. And just like the nation of Israel who refused God's mercy, therefore when you take mercy out of the equation, all you're left is with what? Judgment. You reject mercy, all that's left is judgment. And because of their unbelief, because of their refusal to obey the God, the nation of Israel came into the judgment of God. Just like this country is now presently enduring for its refusal to obey the gospel. Romans chapter 1, we talk about this often. God very clearly lays out Romans chapter 1 type of judgment is the wrath of abandonment upon a people who continue to refuse personally and corporately God's offer of mercy. Therefore, God in his judgment takes away his restraining hand off of the nation and gives the nation over to the desires of their heart. And God gives people over to greater and greater sin, greater and greater iniquity. Again, such as is happening this very day in our nation. What God calls perversion is lifted up and exalted in our nation by our leaders. They try to promote it as a quote-unquote alternative lifestyle. God is completely and wholeheartedly rejected, removed from every venue of the public life. And again, when people refuse grace, when they refuse mercy through Christ, God gives them a spirit of slumber. Eyes that cannot see. Ears that cannot hear the truth as he hardens them. Verse 9. David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Now a person's table ought to be a a place of uh, safety, a place of feasting. But for the ungodly, for the self-righteous, David says it's going to be a snare, a trap. God's word that he gave to men to be a blessing that they rejected and that they refused is going to be a stumbling block. A retribution to them. And again, to a people who refuse refuse God's grace and his mercy, who reject his word and reject his son, the very things that they're placing their hope in, their trust in, their money, their, their wealth, their lifestyle, their table. Those things are going to be the very thing that damns their soul because those things have become more important to them than their own soul and much more important than the person of Jesus Christ, right? The thing that should have been a blessing is going to be the thing that damns their soul. And many people fall in that category. Many people are so willing to throw their whole life behind that which doesn't save 
and reject that which alone can save, that being the person of Jesus Christ. And again, in doing so, they continue to reject God's grace. They continue to reject Christ. And it just leads to more spiritual blindness, more slavery to sin. Verse 10. Their eyes will be darkened and see not. Their backs bent forever is kind of the idea. Under the weight of the burden of their sin. But for us who read the text of the scripture and can understand what it says, it says God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That means we who sit here today and read and understand, we can trust him always. If you've placed your hope and your faith in the person of Jesus Christ, in the God of the Bible, then you can be assured that God will never forsake you, because that's his promise. And you can trust him, therefore your response to him must be love and adoration and worship and thanksgiving. He's the God of enduring love. He's the God of great hope, great truth. And again, the evening sermon ends like the morning sermon. Look up, keep your eyes on him. Understand that the love he has for you through Jesus Christ, even in spite of our times of spiritual rebellion in our own self. Because he's promised to keep his word and nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Our Father and God, so thankful for this opportunity to open your word again this evening. Thankful for this great, wonderful, very full chapter here that we just kind of started working our way through. We thank you that you are a God who does keep your word even in spite of our own sinfulness. And we love you because of that. We thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for this wonderful uh, day of uh, fellowship that we have spent around your word, both morning and evening. Help us to walk with you this week and continue to be obedient and continue to show you and demonstrate and proclaim to you our love that we have for you because of your love for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.